Dr. Aideen McInerney-Leo always had a curiosity about science, and it was a babysitting gig in her teenage years that opened up the world of genetics. While studying her undergraduate in London, Aideen went for a walk past one of the world's leading children's hospitals. A cold call to the hospital switchboard and a letter to the head of clinical genetics department led to an incredible career that has taken Aideen around the world, from London to the National Institutes of Health and Johns Hopkins in the United States, and then to Australia, working at the now Fraser Institute at the University of Queensland. As a genetics counsellor, Aideen's role covers the practicalities of screening, surveillance and testing, and the psychology of grief, burden and guilt associated with inherited diseases. Aiden, thank you so much for joining me. As I understand it, your career in science started with babysitting. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me today, Kirsty. So when I was a teenager, I babysat a girl with cystic fibrosis, and that gave me a whole new lens, I suppose, on medical conditions and genetics specifically. And I was interested in biology at school, but plants weren't doing it for me, to be honest with you. And totally so, hear you there. Totally <laughs> hear you. And so I started to read about genetics, which we were covering minimally in our syllabus. And the more I read about it, the more I thought, I think this is actually going somewhere. This could be a really interesting field. And so it's thanks to that little girl that I uh, explored genetics more fully and ended up moving to London to do an undergraduate in human genetics. So can you tell me a little bit more about cystic fibrosis? So cystic fibrosis is a recessive condition, which means that we each have two copies of every gene and we get one from our mom and one from our dad. And if one copy of those genes isn't working properly, we're fine because the other copy usually compensates. But in the case of cystic fibrosis, you get two non-working copies from each parent. People who have cystic fibrosis usually manifest with some sort of lung complications early in life. They also have digestive issues. And now people with cystic fibrosis are living long enough, thankfully, due to interventions. But we're also seeing that they are prone to other complications as they get older as well. So you moved to London and you decided to follow a career in genetics. How did you find your undergraduate degree? Was that a challenging period? Yes, I, I didn't have a eureka moment in week one, I have to tell you. I was largely a little bit disappointed by how generic the courses were in the first year of my undergraduate. And even my second year of my undergraduate, I had a little bit of a crisis. I thought, have I picked the right thing? This is not what I imagined. I was killing Drosophila fly on a regular basis, and I was a little bit uh, shaken. And I went for a walk to try and clear my head. And honestly, I was having a bit of a panic attack. And I found myself in front of Great Ormond Street Hospital for sick children. And I thought, humans, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to interact with humans. And so back then, I actually called the switchboard of Great Ormond Street Hospital and asked to be put through to the clinical genetics department. And I got through to the secretary and I asked him, who is the head of the department? And I said, I'm going to write to him. She said, fine, here's his address. So I wrote to him. And amazingly, this massive cheese agreed to meet with me. And I managed to get a summer studentship at the department and completely changed my direction and my focus and my passion. What a fantastic story. And what an amazing lesson for people to realize that sometimes no matter how big you are, it just 
all it takes is just to reach out to a student or somebody who's looking for an opportunity and, and you can change their whole career. Absolutely. No, and that would be my, that's my take-home message to most students when I'm talking to them is always email people whose work you find interesting. You never know who's going to respond. Worst case scenario, they don't reply. And if they do reply, you never know where that might lead. So you had this amazing summer internship. What were you working on then? So at that time, they were actually doing an audit of how well the department was serving its patients. And so I would, it was administering surveys to their outpatients and analysing the results. But it meant I also got to go to all the clinics and I also got to go on all the ward rounds. And I was just this invisible person who shadowed everyone else. But it just gave me a whole new appreciation of the potential for genetics to really impact on people's lives. So you finished your degree and then you decided to go on to do your master's. Mm -hmm. Was again that a difficult decision or was that sort of a logical step for you? No, from once I got that summer internship, I thought, yes, I want to do something patient facing. I'm a people person, not so good with the gills and pipettes in the lab. Um, I really like that human interaction. And so sitting in clinic, I learned about genetic counseling and I thought it was the perfect synergy of my passion for science and genetics combined with my desire to interact with people. And then sometimes life doesn't work in a a straight linear fashion. Your life or career got a bit disrupted by love, I understand. I know, how inconvenient. I know, (laughs) damn love. I know, I met this lovely guy from Townsville. He arrived in my life about six years earlier than I was anticipating, but he was too good. Did you tell him that and be like, come back six years later? I actually went out on my first date with him. I went back to my apartment in London and I said to the two guys I was sharing a flat with, I said, I don't know I can go out with a second date with this guy. And they said, why? And I said, because he's the kind of guy you marry and I'm not ready to get married. (laughs) And they were like, oh, for goodness sake, Nadine, (laughs) I think you can go on a second date without agreeing to marry him. (laughs) But I just knew. And so lo and behold, he then goes to the US for a postdoc. And I just pulled up my big girl pants and applied for lots of jobs in the US and was lucky enough to get one. So... And what were you doing in the US then? So I worked at the National Institutes of Health at the Human Genome Research Institute there and worked with Barb Biesecker on genetic counselling research and also as uh, Associate Director of the Masters of Genetic Counselling training program with Johns Hopkins. So what did that look like on a, on a day-to-day NIH, I didn't quite realize I started off in the Holy Grail, basically. (laughs) You didn't have to apply for grants. There were just projects that you got to work on. And so I worked in specialist areas. I worked in hereditary breast and ovarian cancer families, evaluating what the impact of genetic testing was for them, and also evaluating how do we communicate that information to women at increased risk. So there was a lot of women who had some history of breast cancer in the family, but not a very strong one, but were still anxious. So we developed in those days CD-ROMs for actually communicating that information to them and did it make any difference to them. I also got to interview large numbers of girls and women with Turner syndrome who have one X chromosome instead of two X chromosomes and uh, talk about how their experiences affected their lives. And just for our, our lay audience, explain what that means if yeah, you have a different so, number of sex chromosomes. So women have two X chromosomes usually, but we're intriguing because one of the X chromosomes is almost completely a spare and we turn most of it off. But there are key components that we do need. And so women who have one X chromosome 
instead of two, tend to be a little bit shorter in stature and have problems with infertility. They're either picked up in childhood because they're short or they're picked up in adolescence because they fail to go into puberty. So in the US, did you find it an adjustment going from moving from one country to another and and working in a different system? Yeah, it was an adjustment, but funnily enough, it wasn't as big an adjustment as going from the west coast of Ireland to London. The English have a different sense of humour to the Irish, by and large. I mean, I've seen lots of it on television and all the rest of it. But in both instances, I found myself initially holding back a little bit and observing, observing what was funny and all the rest of it. In the US, when I did crack jokes initially, they were usually self-effacing and the poor Americans were like, oh, honey, you don't have to feel bad about yourself. (laughs) I was going, I was just joking. But so I just held back a while and observed and figured out what worked in different circumstances. I completely identify with that as somebody who's tried to crack jokes in other languages and then just had absolute silence because the joke does not translate. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I know what it feels like. So one of the big questions that comes up from our listeners is how many women juggle a successful career in academia and juggle having a family. Mm. Do you have any comments on that from your own experience? Yeah, you know, I know it's not novel, but it is difficult. It really is. I found that the level of demand that it takes to be a good academic doesn't always balance with the level of demand it takes to be a good parent. So you have to make up your mind yourself to just work as hard as you can while you're there and then be present when you go home for your family at home. And I think it's true for people in relationships, whether they have kids or not. But I think that having kids definitely does add that additional side. And there are times when you feel like you're failing on all fronts, to be honest with you, especially because I did my PhD when my kids were in primary school. And so they didn't know what a PhD was completely. They just knew they never wanted to do one. (laughs) And And have uh, they gone on to do one? Well, actually, I think my oldest will eventually, (laughs) funnily enough. She's doing a degree in ancient history at the moment and she's loving it. And she's already coming up with thesis topics. So I think she might. (laughs) (laughs) You train them young. You train them young. And how did you find having conversations? I know some women find it difficult having conversations with their employer about how to manage maternity leave, coming back to work. Did you have positive experiences around that? Well, I'd already had my girls and I was in clinical work at that stage. I was actually in the US where you get no maternity leave whatsoever. People donated days of leave to me so that I could have eight weeks off after the birth of each of my children. So it was a completely different territory then. But I find now it's crystallized the kind of leader that I want to be and the kind of group leader I want to be. So one of my members of my group is currently out on maternity leave, has the most gorgeous little boy and that we've all owned and adopted for the group. (laughs) I am a firm believer that with the right support and sponsorship, people can have both. We don't want to lose that portion of the workplace because they feel like there isn't an avenue for them to be able to do both well. And you mentioned there something about sponsorship. What's been your experience with sponsorship, both from a sponsee perspective and a sponsor perspective? Yeah, I've had the most amazing bosses, for want of a better word, who have given me incredible opportunities and acknowledged the contribution that I made for those endeavors as well, too, which opened other doors. That has made all the difference in the world. And so I won't embarrass him, but my current boss, Peter Sawyer, has just been an incredible sponsor, just seeing the landscape for me ahead that I necessarily didn't see myself. 
and saying, right, Aideen, this is a great opportunity for you. I'm going to put you forward for that and suggest that you'd be good to lead X, Y, or Z. And when you see it done so beautifully for you, you know exactly how well it works in practice. And that's exactly what I try to do for my group as well, to nominate them for awards, give them opportunities to be lead author, you know, all of those kind of type things that will increase their chances of success in the future, introduce them to international collaborators, send them to conferences, all of those kind of type things to increase their visibility. So let's go back to your time in the US. So you were there working, you had a young family. How did you decide the next career step for you? I was again working for an amazing person at the time called Bob Nussbaum. I was working with him on the genetics of Parkinson's disease and he got offered a great position at UCSF and he wanted me to go with him. He wanted Paul, my husband, to go with him as well. We looked into it and thought about it and we decided The girls were like 10 months old and three at that stage, and we weren't close to anyone's family, and it was really, really difficult. San Francisco did not look like a very affordable place to be bringing up a young family, and so we decided this might be the time to move to Australia to be closer to Paul's family. And we knew that if we weren't going to follow Bob, it was time to leave the US at that point, yeah. And so what made you decide to do a PhD in the first place? So I think like a lot of people, I look back and... I've got a healthy amount of curiosity about a lot of things. I find lots of things very, very interesting. When I came back to Australia, I worked in clinical practice for four years until my youngest started school. And then once she started school, I thought, I want to get back to research. And so I wrote to Matt Brown, who was the director at the time of the genomics group at the now Fraser Institute. My husband was working for him. And I wrote to him and said, you know, you don't have to say anything to Paul. Here's my background. If you think it might be interesting, I'd be happy to meet with you. He wrote back in 10 minutes and said, you sound like you've got exactly the skill set I need. Can you meet tomorrow? I met with him the following day. He offered me a job on the spot. And I started to be a research genetic counselor in his group. And Paul is a bioinformatician and he's producing all of this sequencing data for individuals with rare disorders that I was recruiting. And he was frustrated because nobody was analyzing the data. And I said, do you think you could teach me how to analyze the data? And he said, oh yeah, definitely. So he taught me how to analyze the data. And on a Friday evening, I found my first gene in for a rare condition. And I tell you, it was the most exciting thing I'd done on a Friday night. <laughs> I was so excited. And, uh, and then I was hooked. And I was analyzing all the rest of the data. And Matt Brown said, you need to do a PhD. You're performing as a postdoc. You may as well get a PhD. So I did. I went for it and did a PhD then. Can you tell me what genetic counseling is? What would a typical encounter with a patient look like? Absolutely. So genetic counseling is the process whereby you take a family history and a medical history from somebody. You review all of that. And based on the information in front of you, you talk about what you think is going on in the family from a genetic point of view. In a cancer setting or in a prenatal setting, neurology setting, based on the fact that you've had this, your aunt had that, your grandmother had this, this is what I think could be going on in your family. And on the basis of that, here are the tests that we could offer you that would actually identify whether there's a gene going through your family that has caused all of these different things. And then when the test result comes back, 
talking through what it means for that individual and what that means for the other members of the family as well too. And that includes obviously practical things like screening, surveillance, testing, etc. But also psychologically, what does that mean for other members of the family in the case of conditions that are inherited through women, X-linked conditions, what that means in terms of guilt and burden and all of those kind of type things as well too. So there's a big psychological element to genetic counselling. So how does one know they need genetic counselling? Is that something that patients come to you or do you identify people in the public or how does that work? So that's a great question and it's a, it's a challenging one because right now it can be a little bit ad hoc. So sometimes it'll be because somebody is seen prenatally, an abnormality is picked up or a condition is highlighted in the family and an obstetrician refers them for genetic counselling or a prenatal radiologist refers them, etc. Sometimes it's picked up because they go to their GP and they say, you know, my sister's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm worried because my mum died of ovarian cancer and my and, and then the GP refers them for genetic counselling. Sometimes it's because one of those family members has actually been to a genetic counsellor and then that family member comes back and says, the genetic counsellor says, you, you and you all need to go for genetic counselling. <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways that it's happening at the moment. But it very often requires that patients will kind of flag or initiate in the first place this is something that's going on in my family that I'm worried about. Who should I talk to? And then the doctor usually refers them at that point. What sort of training is there available in Australia if you want to become a genetic counsellor? And what does the pathway look like? Yeah, so there's two Masters of Genetic Counselling training programs available in Australia at the moment, one at UTS, University of Technology, Sydney, and the other at University of Melbourne. So you typically have an undergraduate degree in a science. It can be in a psychology, can be nursing, can be any number of things. And then you have to show that you've kind of researched the field a little bit and that you understand that it's not just interesting human genetic side of things. There's also that psychology element as you help people to kind of cope and adjust to the condition, to the genetics, etc. And then you do a two years fairly intense masters of uh, genetic counselling where you cover clinical genetics and you also cover the counselling side of things. How do you help people at a time of very often a time of crisis to adjust to that information? What do you find the most difficult part of your job? Is it the psychology aspect of things? So as a genetic counsellor, I think my most challenging job was when I worked in prenatal for four years when I first came to Australia. Just because if you're an empathic person, you can't help but feel the pain of the people in front of you. And my kids were young. I could identify with what it felt like to be pregnant and optimistic and excited to then imagine how devastated it would be to go in and have an ultrasound where there was abnormalities detected or amniocentesis where there was abnormalities detected. So those were the challenging times. And right as I decided to leave, I just had a six-month period where there was just a lot of bad news, to be honest with you, and I was a little bit overwhelmed and burnt out by the end. So it's a high-risk thing for genetic counsellors, which is why we put supervision in place for genetic counsellors so they get a chance to debrief with each other and process these complicated cases, etc. Mm. When you look back on your career so far, what do you think has been your biggest achievement to date? There's a lot of things that I'm proud of in my career, but I think supporting and nurturing and mentoring other researchers and genetic counsellors in the space has been the most rewarding element of my career so far. 
I work with the most incredible people, predominantly female, not because I have anything against guys, but 95% plus of genetic counselors are female. We have a gender balance issue in our field. So a lot of the people that I've mentored have been incredible women that are smart and capable and thoughtful and motivated to do good research for all the right reasons. I think as a genetic counselor, I spend a lot of time sitting opposite families, shrugging my shoulders, saying, we don't know what condition your child has. We don't know how it's inherited. We don't know what the chances are of you having another child with the same condition. And so in the process of my PhD, I found genes for 12 different rare conditions. And I know that that had a massive impact on those families in terms of being able to connect with other families with the same conditions and being able to anticipate what the future might hold in terms of prognosis. So those stick with me and my interactions with those families following the discoveries really stick with me as well too. And I guess looking forward, what do you think is the most exciting thing in your field or the next big thing to change genetic counselling? The mission for me and for our group is to democratise access to genetic testing. So there's a lot of people out there who would benefit from genetic testing who can't access it. And so our group works on upskilling non-genetics doctors to be able to offer genetic testing and also develops educational interventions for patients so that they have a chance to a priori go through that information and crystallise their questions for the doctor and then make an informed decision about whether it's the right thing for them. Finally, this is your platform. Do you have anything you would like to say to women working in science or women who are aspiring to have a career in science? The future is female. To all those women out there who are considering STEM or already in the field of STEM, I really think this is a great time. It's challenging. Funding, as we know, is incredibly challenging. But there's also incredible opportunities. People repeatedly tell me, and I believe, that the future is female in terms of all of those soft skills that we can bring to a situation which maybe were undervalued in the past. Now is the time for us. I love that. The future is female. Thank you very much for your time today, Aideen. It was fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Women in Science. Your donation can help us tell more stories like this one. You can find the donation link in the episode notes. Production for this episode was by Dr Marina Fortes, Dr Marlous Decker and Dr Kirsty Short. Senior technical production was by Dan Seed. Make sure you subscribe to Women in Science. Thanks for listening.